episode of the Rage Podcast. In honor of May as Mental Health Awareness Month, this episode is going to highlight mental health in the Black community. So strap in for an episode covering an array of topics that all concern Black mental health and wellness with our guest today, Dr. April Alexander. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the episode. first and foremost thank you for again for being with me and sharing this space excited for our conversation because this is really an important topic that I feel like doesn't get discussed enough so thank you for being here not a problem thank you for having me for those who may be unfamiliar with you would you be willing to introduce yourself and as well as any background on black mental health essentially Yeah, my name is Dr. April Alexander. I'm an associate professor here at the Graduate School of Professional Psychology at DU, this being my fifth year here. And a little bit about my story is I originally got into psychology wanting to work with survivors of interpersonal violence. So childhood abuse, domestic violence, any form of different violence based off an internship experience I had while I was an undergrad. Probably beginning back then, I started seeing some of the disparities that were happening in our systems for communities of color. For instance, I served as a care companion, which was a person who goes to hospitals or police stations after a person had experienced a sexual assault to be an advocate for them. And one of the stories that stood out to me the most was responding to a call involving a Black woman. She was recently sexually assaulted. She was there with her mother. The police showed up to interview her. They initially kicked me out of the room, which typically doesn't happen when I was responding to calls, but they didn't want me in the room. And then all of a sudden I saw her run out and run out the room and run out the hospital. When her mom went to talk to her, she said, uh, you know, the police started asking her about her boyfriend who was a drug dealer and this, that, and the other. And it had nothing to do with her actual experience of assaults. From that moment, just thinking about the way in which survivors were being treated in our systems. And as I started continuing on in my graduate training, became interested in the field of forensic psychology, which is the intersection between psychology and the legal system. Initially, I wanted to know what happens to survivors as they go through the system and how do we fulfill some of the gaps that are happening in our system and serving survivors. Um, But I also started working with individuals who offend. And so for three years prior to coming to DU, I was in Alabama working in a residential treatment facility uh, with adolescents who sexually offended in a juvenile detention facility. And again, who was there most of the time? Black and brown kids. And those kids, even though they had this illegal behavior, again, they had a lot of trauma. Their stories were marked by physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, neighborhood violence. Uh, Their houses were taken out in some of the Alabama tornadoes. Uh, So some of these kids, and again, being majority of kids of color had experienced severe trauma, but when you ask them, nobody had ever talked to them about their trauma. They never got treatment or services for the trauma they experienced. So once again, even in that system, we saw those disparities occurring. Um, So for me, I'm trying to think about uh, across systems, across all populations, but especially for marginalized, historically marginalized groups and underrepresented groups, how can we fulfill this need for adequate mental health care? What if we would have gotten those young people mental health care when they needed it? How do we kind of eliminate the kind of stigma that comes with mental health care? How do we eliminate the barriers that come with access to adequate mental health care in our system, especially for Black communities? 
there's a lot there that I kind of want to break down. So like, where, where should I start? But I guess the first thing that came to mind was in learning more about your work and your research, but the trauma-informed care aspect of that, which I think was really highlighted for what you had said, is that a lot of the kids that you were working with had also had trauma that hadn't been properly dealt with that they hadn't even been asked about before. So within the conversation on Black mental health or just in, in terms of survivors, in terms of friends of survivors, how within the conversation of Black mental health should we incorporate trauma-informed care? Mm. Uh, trauma-informed care needs to be incorporated in all of our systems, and we're, we're having these discussions of uh, what does trauma-informed schooling look like. Uh, mm -hmm. I did a lecture last week with attorneys. What does trauma-informed lawyering look like? Uh, are you asking your clients about their experiences in life and how that uh, isn't an excuse for their behaviors, but might contextualize what happened to them and why they're behaving in the way in which they're behaving? So for me, when I'm talking to folks in community, whether it's in a professional role or a personal role, just how do we tell those stories and narratives about what's happening to Black people in community? I'm not trying to label everything as a trauma, but can we just talk about the experiences of being a Black person in America right now and how that frames your identity, how that frames how you see the world, how that in impacts access to services, uh, how that impacts your education. Um, so one, it is identifying just uh, the stories and narratives of Black people and uh, how they're navigating the world. But for those who have experienced trauma, naming it as such. That in this last year, I've been getting a lot of questions about racial trauma. Now, I, I've been a trauma researcher since I started this work, since I was in uh, grad school, and I studied polyvictimization. Uh, so the experience of multiple different types of trauma. So like I said, with the boys, they experience physical abuse, sexual abuse, neighborhood violence, bullying, uh, and natural disasters. But in all my prior research, and not just mine, but in research in the field, nobody asked about racial trauma. Uh, and so we know that these experiences of discrimination, these experiences of even witnessing a tape of police violence is traumatizing. It's potentially traumatizing. So why isn't that in our regular assessment and screening of trauma? Why aren't we talking about the ongoing discrimination and prejudices that uh, Black people are facing and thinking about how that impacts you? Uh, again, it might not be a full-blown trauma, uh, but it's definitely a stressor. It's something that disrupts your life and well-being. Um, and so if we're thinking about this broad umbrella of trauma-informed care, it starts with assessing and identifying it and then thinking about what does that mean in terms of our systems? So I've talked to schools and they're like, we're doing trauma-informed schooling. Not when you're handcuffing eight-year-olds for having behavioral problems, especially when I'm reading those eight-year-olds had um, uh, intellectual disabilities who had developmental plans, um, you handcuffing them for their, um, what you're labeling as their maladaptive behavior is not trauma-informed care. So even this term of trauma-informed care, I think we still need to discuss what does that truly mean across all systems? When you were talking, something that I was reminded of is at an internship that I had for a while, I can't remember which department it was, but it was a department in terms of Colorado government. And they came to give us a presentation on mental health and on suicide. And the whole presentation focused on 
white people specifically with a little subsection of LGBTQ. And there was nothing there about anyone, any POC <laughs> at all. And I had asked him about it because I was like, why isn't this a part of your curriculum if we're talking about mental illness, if we're talking about suicide, which affects everyone. And he was like, oh, well, I'm not really sure why it's not there. I'm not really sure why this isn't an aspect of this and kind of just shoved it to the side. And so when you were talking, I was thinking a lot about that in terms of there it's, seems to be this idea that we're not necessarily, a, we don't experience mental illnesses the same way, or we also don't need help. Like we also don't experience anxiety. We don't experience depression. So I think these things are just reaffirmed and they're deep in it, that this was a Colorado government sponsored person and people of color weren't on there at all. Yeah, so you have these systems not even taking an intersectional lens to thinking about some of these issues. Uh, the rate of black suicide in youth is escalating right now. Uh, our black youth are hurting. Um, and again, we still need to spend time identifying what actually is going on with them. I can name some things, but uh, some of our work needs to be actually talking to these youth and thinking about what do they need? Uh, why is this occurring at such a um, high rate? Um, and fortunately, there are a lot of federal grants coming open right now dedicated to Black youth suicide. Um, and so we are finally, finally committing ourselves to that. Uh, there was an article that came out in 2020 that I keep referencing in all my presentations, uh, which asked Black youth to document different experiences of discrimination over a 14-day period, um, journal them down. At the end of that 14-day period, the results found out that on average, these Black youth experienced 70 different incidents of racial discrimination in 14 days. Average. So when you look at the range, there were kids who experienced way more than 70. Uh, what were they endorsing? Uh, the experience of them uh, seeing people lock their car door as they walked by, uh, their teacher treating them as if they weren't smart, uh, them going around peers and peers uh, saying, uh, do you ascribe to a certain stereotype? So show me that new dance that the Black people are doing on TikTok uh, and things like that, all the way to racial slurs. So what do those 70 different incidents in 14 days do to that Black youth? What does that do to their um, racial identity development? What does that do to their self-concept and self-esteem and how they see themselves in the world? So when you're saying that they're ignoring talking about this kind of intersectional issue of suicide uh, in the Black community, and uh, there are Black LGBTQ people too, uh, so compound that, uh, then we're missing part of the picture. And so, yes, um, some of our prevention and intervention uh, tools that are needed aren't culturally informed. And so if we're going to be talking about this issue of Black suicide and or Black mental health, we need to be taking that uh, racial justice intersectional lens and in kind of thinking about these mental health concerns. Uh, you know, I still hear people to this day uh, that Black women, and I, I just listened to another podcast yesterday, Black women uh, don't have eating disorders. Wrong. Uh, and so once again, there's always this kind of narrative about what's happening uh, with Black people in the healthcare system and mental health care system. And it goes back centuries. Even today, uh, 
there's doctors and um, medical trainees who don't believe that black people experience the same level of pain or have a higher threshold for pain. So we get less pain medication. Uh, we have the maternal mortality crisis. Black women are dying in childbirth at a rate of four times more than white women. So we don't take the pain of black people seriously. We don't take their health seriously. We don't take their mental health as seriously. One of the things you had said was kind of the misconceptions that people have in terms of the example that you gave was that black women don't experience eating disorders. So that made me kind of curious in doing the work that you do, what are some of those misconceptions, those stereotypes that they have around black mental health within the black community or outside of the black community? I think uh, the myths within the black community is uh, again, we're able to sustain pain and trauma more than others. Uh, and they're predating that back to slavery. Uh, our ancestors did endure a lot. They did survive beatings. They did survive sexual assaults. Some didn't. Uh, and so people, white people still have it in their head that we have this high threshold for all the pain in the world. Uh, because we're constantly suffering different forms of pain, um, including, you know, the most recent kind of incidents of police violence. Um, so I, I think that biggest misconception is out there of, oh, they're tougher, they're stronger, they can withdraw stress. And that has such an impact on, again, access to care and access to adequate care that we can just tough it out. And, and that's not the case. And I think sometimes we internalize that as well. Uh, that we internalize that we have to be tougher and bigger and withstand all of this. And uh, we can only do so much. A common phrase that I grew up with was black people don't get depressed or depression is for white people in terms of depression as a luxury. And so I am very familiar with that rhetoric where it's like, your, your humanity and your ability to experience emotions like everyone else is kind of tossed to the side. And then you're hammered with that. Oh, we're stronger. We've gone through so much. We can take it. We can take. And it's like, it gets this point where it's, for me, it feels kind of dehumanizing in a way where it's like, yes, we can do these things, but we shouldn't constantly have to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders and then the weight of the world on their shoulders on ours while it's crushing us. Yeah, we have this weird dichotomy of being dehumanized and superhumanized. Yes. So, <laughs> so we're, we're tough and we can withstand everything, but then we're dehumanized to the point where you can't experience pain. Um, you know, do we get the day off after we hear the Chauvin verdict or we hear about another shooting? No, uh, and we go into these spaces, sometimes these all white spaces and everybody's moving on. Uh, that uh, sometimes it jars me when I come into a space and I see everybody laughing and smiling and I don't feel that way. And that feeling disjointing of, uh, do you see what's going on in the news right now? How can we be, uh, how can everybody be feeling this way and I'm feeling a different way? Well, it's because of my identity. Um, and so I, I think some of those messages that you got aren't untrue. Uh, I, I think that black people do feel like we don't have the time and luxury to feel. Um, because sometimes the world feels like it's moving on. Uh, but that's not true. That doesn't erase our feelings. Uh, we are still feeling these things. We're still feeling these pain. Uh, so what are we doing with that? Are we engaging in 
good coping mechanisms uh, when we are feeling that pain and getting support for it. And that's where the need for mental health care is coming, uh, that some people are struggling and we need to identify that and see what the next steps are for that person. When we're talking about Black mental health, and we had talked about this at the very beginning in terms of kind of the resource disparities that are available, specifically in terms for Black and Brown youth. So when we're looking at resources regarding mental health, what does that look like in terms of are resources accessible for most in terms of money, in terms of time, in terms of those things that often get talked about? Mm -hmm. Well, we have to view this from a systemic perspective. And a lot of people, especially our public health uh, folks are talking about these social determinants of health. What are the things in your life and environment that um, create healthy, happy lives? Uh, so, you know, starting at the systemic level, do you have access to healthy food? Or we know some places in the Denver metro area have food deserts, so you don't. And we know that healthy food, uh, fr fresh fruits and vegetables cause you to have good health outcomes, whether it's um, physical health or mental health. Then let's think of like even our school system. Uh, there are currently 14 million students who are in schools with police officers, uh, but no clinician, no psychologist, no school nurse, no social worker. Uh, so, you know, the ACLU and a, a bunch of other even local organizations like Padres y Jovenes Unidos have talked about this counselors and no cops movement. Um, so uh, for that kid who is experiencing all that distress in school, where do they go to? Who do they talk to? Well, some of your schools don't even have that option. Then we'll get to the adults. Uh, so we have these disparities with wages. Uh, we know black people are getting paid much lesser than white people uh, in jobs. Uh, unemployment rates are higher. And then insurance. Insurance companies were not prioritizing mental health and behavioral health. A lot of insurance companies are just now tacking on mental health and behavioral health into their plan. Uh, in fact, at the Colorado le uh, State Legislature right now, they're trying to pass a bill to where everybody would have a uh, mental health exam, a mental health physical every year, just like you would have a physical exam each year. Um, so that that's not that's a privilege at this point to get mental health care in general and to be able to afford it. Now, there's other mechanisms, like we have clinics on campus that have sliding scale, but a lot of people think and have that rumor in their head, oh my gosh, mental health care is so expensive and inaccessible that we're not even exploring options. Then, what if you wanted a clinician who can identify with what you're going through? Now, we, we do have white clinicians who might be uh, adequately trained in uh, talking about these issues and talking about race, but some people say they're not. Uh, there's research out there on microaggressions and microaggressions happening in the therapy room. So if that's your first experience in therapy, experience in a microaggression, or your feelings and your beliefs being invalidated, then some people don't come back. Uh, there's research saying if you have a quote unquote difficult to pronounce name or ethnic sounding name, you might not get the call back from your doctor or mental health clinician that's a gap. So people are being aware of that and they're saying, well, now I wanna find a clinician of color. Only 4% of uh, psychologists are black. Uh, we live in the Denver metro area. Again, population low. Um, so if you were trying to find somebody, have that match, again, you don't need a match, but if you were trying to find it, is that person accessible? 
And I could tell you some of the therapy offices, they're over flooded right now. So there's a wait list. And so again, there's so many different kind of gaps in our system that we need to address in order to get adequate care. But I do want to say on a positive note, there's care out there. We do have providers uh, of color out here. We have a whole collective out in Aurora uh, that has mental health providers. COVID-19 had some benefits in some ways for mental health care. A lot of places were saying, oh, we don't do telehealth right now. That's too complicated. Well, when the world shut down last year, we were forced into it. And so now all sorts of practitioners are doing telehealth. Uh, so now it's more accessible to people that you don't have to uh, get transportation. You can do telehealth from Zoom or some other compatible resource. Um, so actually in this moment, pe more people are seeking out mental health resources. And then we're developing all sorts of um, ways in order to uh, get people clinicians of color. So there's the website, directory, and podcast, Therapy for Black Girls. Uh, and there's also another one for Black men. So you can go onto that website and look for clinicians of color in your area. So there are so many people working to alleviate those gaps uh, that soon we won't have too many kind of, uh, of those barriers in place to access mental health care. I like a point that you brought up in terms of the kind of struggles in finding potentially a therapist that accepts you for all of your identities and where those microaggressions aren't present. I remember in when I was in high school, it was the first time that I actually went to therapy and had kind of the privilege to be able to do that. And the lady that I worked with was extremely just very homophobic <laughs> just the and I laugh because it's uncomfortable not because it's sure, funny sure, sure. but and that was like my first experience in therapy and that was the first time she was the first person I had came out to so it was my first experience with someone that I thought I could trust because you're legitimately paying this person and that wasn't the experience and so I think that's also kind of a misconception with therapy that goes around that the first person you work with might not be the one for you. Um, I know a lot of people in their like journeys have had multiple therapists sat with them, decided maybe, maybe not, maybe done a couple sessions, then found someone else. But I think it's not necessarily the first person that you talk to might not be the one that's gonna like shift things immediately or have that immediate connection and that's okay. Yes, yes, you have to know that. Um, my colleague on her podcast yesterday, she uh, gave this great analogy. You've gone to bad hairdressers before, right? You found a new one, <laughs> right? <laughs> You've tried others. Uh, so her message to Black folks was don't give up. Uh, that sometimes the therapist match isn't for you. Um, I'm not the match for each and every client that I serve. Uh, I might not be a match for all Black clients. And that's okay, uh, that hopefully we're working together to find you that match. But in your experience, that's a whole nother different thing. Um, again, that's all about um, how are we training clinicians? Who come, who's coming into the field and then having ownership about what, uh, again, people are experiencing. Yes, that was, those were micro or not so microaggressions to be a homophobic clinician. And there's gonna be others uh, who don't go back or not gonna try this again. Are all clinicians like this? And that's what I found too, is that, I mean, that was kind of my experience. I was like, oh, is this it? <laughs> like, is this all there is? And I know other people have had kind of negative experiences with their therapists and then they think that that's all it is. And so it's like, no, like 
those were just we could there's good like you said there's good people out there who can provide you with the care that you actually need and the care that actually gives you the care that you deserve yes yes there was one thing you had highlighted that i really was wanting to talk about in terms of everything that happened over the summer everything that's been happening for years but was really um the protests that happened during the summer and specifically you had mentioned also the Chauvin verdict. And I know that that time was heavy for a lot of people in terms of you go on social media, people be posting videos there. You'd see these videos, this constant, um, this seeing people lose their lives on video, on Instagram, Facebook, it was everywhere. And so I knew a lot of people where it was, they were just exhausted. And then paired with a lot of performative activism that was going on, a lot of people just felt like they could not take a breath without just feeling so heavy. So I kind of want to know for you, and then you can take this personally or just kind of in your interactions with people, how was that for you? How was after the Chauvin verdict for you? How, how did you handle everything that was going on and is going on? Yeah, not well. I mean, part of it, uh, as you talked about social media, I still have not seen the George Floyd tape. Uh, that was deliberate. That was intentional. That I can't watch any more uh, murders or lynchings of Black people on camera. Um, sometimes it's hard to avoid uh, because I'm active on like social media. So I think there was another incident where I watched the shooting by accident because, again, it was scrolling through my feed. So part of this is all about self-care. How do we protect ourselves? So yeah, let's stop watching the video. Uh, let's stop sharing it. Uh, for Black people, we don't need to watch it. We, we've known what happens. Uh, some of that sharing of videos is more for others. Uh, you all didn't believe this happened. And, and that's what happened with the George Floyd tape. I think what was so unique last year is, I think it was the stay at home order. We were all at home, we were all on our social media and you couldn't avoid that tape. So it was in your face. So you couldn't deny what happened in that tape. And that was jarring for the people who were new to this, uh, who could avoid it in the past of, oh yeah, I heard about Trayvon, but I didn't really pay attention. And that was a rare instance. No, it's not. Uh, and so when you weren't able to avoid it, that's when people were like, whoa, this actually is an issue. Um, and so for those people, videos useful in some ways of actually validating and believing the stories of marginalized groups. Um, but for Black people, no, we got to engage in self-care. So sometimes it's tuning out. Uh, sometimes it's getting away and thinking about the ways in which we care for ourselves. Um, and, you know, I struggled in the last year because I, I felt that uh, the news cycle was nonstop. Uh, you had the police violence, you had the election coming up, you had the insurrection, uh, even the Chauvin case. Um, you know, while the verdict was being read, I didn't know this until afterwards, um, because I had classes and meetings and things like that, uh, you know, a teenager was killed. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I can't catch a break. Uh, all of this kind of news cycle is going on over and over again. So for us, just thinking about what does actual, actual self-care look like? Um, what is the process of healing through all this uh, when we're having this continued pattern of tragedy go on? And I think a lot of us had to be adaptive and resourceful in this time. 
so you know, doing more Zoom parties with friends and getting connected because I can't see you in person because it wasn't safe due to COVID. Uh, finding, uh, you know, new ways to engage in hobbies. I saw more people outside last year than ever before. And right now, now the weather's warming up. Uh, so getting out, exercising, stepping away, that we had to find kind of new ways to adapt in, uh, in this dire time. Um, so for us, I think this is a practice in what true self-care is, uh, that this has been going on for centuries and will continue to go on in the foreseeable future. So how do we keep ourselves healthy uh, in this moment? How do we get the supports we need? This is kind of going back to our earlier conversation, but I had watched this video and surprisingly, it's showing my age a bit. It was a TikTok video, but- in- I, I watch a lot of TikTok, so- Oh, fabulous! <laughs> <laughs> I always never know, so I'm like, oh, I don't wanna see you. It just- part, It's actually part of my self-care. <laughs> that it's, it's a few minutes a day where I get to laugh at videos. My algorithm shows up the dance videos, the comedy videos. So yeah. that gives me space to decompress. I love that. One of my favorite, I just got on TikTok, Black Botany TikTok. Oh, yeah. And so just black people taking care of their plants and I'm a plant mom. So I was like, this is where I want to be. But the video, and I wanted to kind of throw this at you just to see what your thoughts on it. But he's talking about uh, movies that he's seen and TV shows that he's seen. And so how he phrased it is, and I'll have to find this video, but he says, I'm tired of seeing black pain movies. So just in kind of hearing that phrase, what kind of comes to mind for you? Um, the most immediate Black pain movie I can think of uh, was like The Queen and Slim. Um, it was uh, positioned as a Black romance. Like that's how it was marketed. I do a lot of pop culture research and stuff too. So it was marketed as this um, Black romance film. Uh, yeah, it had an incident where an officer was shot. We knew a little bit about that, but it was marketed and branded as this uh, romance film, but throughout it, and if you haven't watched it, I won't spoil it, but throughout it, um, in the ending was Black Pain, and I left the theater like, I didn't want to watch this, and actually me and a group of friends were organizing to go see it together, but I snuck and saw it first, and I was like, I'm not watching this ever again. I can't watch it a second time. And actually I was like, I don't recommend that you all go watch it. And they did. And they were like, oh yeah, this is not what we needed. Um, uh, who was this intended for? What was the purpose? Um, yeah, I, I think as an artist, there should be a diversity in range of stories, but historically in Hollywood, we've just seen this pattern of black pain being on display over and over again. Um, and even in award season, that's what gets rewarded. Uh, it wasn't Denzel Washington and all his incredible roles. It was him playing this corrupt police officer. It's Viola Davis playing a maid uh, that gets rewarded. Uh, it's, uh, you know, some of the other portrayals of like slavery getting rewarded. And even those aren't that accurate uh, of like Chris Rock saying, no, show the real deal of what slavery looks like. Uh, the pain, the deaths, the rapes, um, uh, and even that's Black pain. But when we're talking about social justice movements, uh, one of the things that uh, myself and community organizers talk about is where is Black joy and celebration? 
uh, we're not in pain all the time. And again, that goes to kind of that dehumanization, superhumanization kind of aspect is we, we have happy moments, we have joyous moments, we have celebratory moments. I wanna see that on, uh, on film. Uh, I think it might've come out like a few weeks later, uh, the photograph of Issa Rae, that was an actual romance of black people being in love and nothing bad happened. That now when I go to the theater, I'm bracing myself for the bad thing. When's the ball gonna drop? But when's the disaster gonna drop on them? Where's the tragedy that's gonna happen? Uh, I've heard other podcasters say, I want like the Black Adam Sandler movies that are just goofy and ridiculous and Hollywood spends a lot of money on those. Why don't we get those movies? Um, So I I think that's where some people are getting sick in this moment, particularly now. We have pain all around us. Um, Entertainment, usually uh, it can be educational and informative and show these diverse stories, but it also is an escape for some of us. And I just want that escape in some of my media where I just want to see Black joy and love and laughter and celebration. Yes, same, exactly same. And that's why I think going back to the botany TikTok, I think that's why I love that so much. It was just plant life and me and plant parents. It was a, a break from all that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think that it can be very frustrating at times that, especially if you're someone who does community organizing work or activist work, that you do, you see the injustices almost on a daily level, if not a daily level. And then you go to a movie just trying to relax and then it's there again. And so there's not always like that escape. So it's nice when there's just movies that kind of just celebrate black life and black joy and black love it's like a reminder of just the, I always go back to this, but like a reminder of the humanity, a, a reminder of what life is and, and not always just exploiting the pain that black people experience. Yeah, I just um, uh, finished a book chapter for a book that's coming out in a few weeks. Uh, it's about very special episodes of television, like all the cheesy corny ones, like from the nineties on uh, television and we were supposed to select different episodes to kind of talk about and series to talk about. And we did a panel a couple of weeks ago about the book and doing good promo for the book. And, you know, a question came up is, are we seeing more very special episodes now, like reactionary, very special episodes, either about COVID or the Black Lives Matter movement? It is true uh, that, yeah, I'm watching Grey's Anatomy and they are covering COVID, which makes sense because you can't ignore it in a doctor show. Uh, And they covered like the protests last week. And I was like, oh, I can't even get away from Grey's. Um, So this whole space of, should we acknowledge it of what's going on in the real world in our entertainment? Um, Because it would be weird to ignore it. Um, Or is it performative? Like you could have been covering these issues in the last few years uh, and you chose not to, but all of a sudden now you're choosing to cover these issues. Um, So again, that was another conversation we were having on that panel about, uh, do we want those episodes or do we not? If we don't have them, is that erasing what's going on in the real world and we just have this fantasy land or do we want our fantasy land and we're trying to escape the real world? What other things kind of from this episode, if someone didn't get anything else from it except for this one thing, what would it be that you'd leave them with? 
think our um, kind of core message is there's care out there and I need people to get access to that care. Um, that mental health care, uh, behavioral health care should be part of our full health care. It should just be health care. Uh, that we need to be taking care of not only our bodies, but our minds, our spirits, our hearts. Um, and that's so important in these times that are so tough. Um, people are struggling. There's a stress in America study that comes out of APA like every year. And I think about eight out of 10 Americans are uh, endorsed experiencing COVID related stress. And not just your normal every day to day stress, but like almost clinical levels of stress. Um, so we're struggling. So one, how are you taking care of yourself? Two, how can you rely on community? And then three, if you actually do need help from a person who's supposed to be objective and you need that other lens and can get you professional help on how to deal with depression, anxiety, trauma, go get it. There are resources out there. Uh, you can get connected to them. Um, and so just know that you need this. It's part of your overall health and well-being. There's too many people. Um, there's too many Black women specifically, dying of early age because they're probably not taking care of their whole self. These mental health problems also transition to physical health problems. Um, so the stress and anxiety is wearing on your heart. Uh, the, uh, we talk about adverse childhood experiences. Those early childhood experiences that you have that you haven't dealt with lead to your life reduction by about 20 years if you're not getting that intervention and help that you need. Uh, so part of this movement is surviving. I need people to be here. I need people to be thriving. I need people to be healthy. And I need people to be happy. This was great. Thank you so much for our conversation and for talking with me today. Not a problem anytime. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Rage Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by iRISE, or the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality. For more information about us and the work that we do, please visit irise.du.edu. To ensure that we can continue to bring you quality content, please be sure to subscribe or follow, like, and share on the platform that you're listening to us on. The music for this episode is by producer Redman and is entitled Hold On. Once again, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Rage Podcast. We'll see you soon.